0: career in Wags for the 21st century. My name is Catherine Cunningham and I'm a career specialist who's worked with thousands of people by now and so what I'm trying to do in this podcast series is tap into things that I've learned, things that I've come to understand over the years to help people better manage their careers and be happier at work. Today I'm going to talk to you about one of my favourite profiles, ENFP. first about MBTI. I love it. It's my favorite work. And if I'm, if I'm working with somebody who's not happy at work, and they only have one hour to work with me, I always recommend MBTI. Because if you can uncover your hardwired preferences, rather than learned behavior or learned skills, you can use that information to decide what sort of work to do. So, for example, when I was at the bank, my spreadsheets were basically full of errors because I don't have natural attention to detail. Now, since then, I've learned attention to detail. Anybody who works with me on resumes gets pretty amazed at everything I spot. So, yes, I can have attention to detail, but do I want to be in a job all day where I have to absolutely focus on the task at hand and notice every slight little issue? I can tell you no. So where does it come from? I want to give you a little bit of theory before we start. I'm going to look at the four separate letters, MBTI, one at a time, and that will help you understand it. And I'm going to start at the back. So the I stands for indicator. MBTI is not a test. So if you go online and do one of those free versions, it's pretty well a waste of time. It is only an indicator. As an accredited practitioner, I'm bound by the ethics to only ever deliver the assessment with the debrief. Many times people think when they do the assessment that they're, for example, an ENTP, and it's only when you properly explore hardwired preferences in the debrief that they may, for example, come to understand they're not an extrovert, that was learned behaviour, they're actually fundamentally an introvert. So it's an indicator, not a test. The next letter I want to look at is the T. The T stands for type. And there's two issues to look at here. The first one is there are 16 types or 16 possibilities. And that is both the strength and weakness of MBTI. The strength is, from a career perspective, when people get their profile, it's like this aha light bulb moment. Often the comment is, I cannot believe this is so right. The level of detail, however, means that they forget their profile. So if I rang somebody up a year later and said, look, what's your profile? They'll probably get it wrong. For our career purposes, that doesn't matter. All we're trying to do with MBTI is stop for a minute in time, have a think about hardwired preferences, and use that information to make career decisions. And the other aspect of type, is it's not tray or trait theory. So many instruments will measure you on a continuum. They'll say you're more like this than a particular cohort or less like this. As soon as you do Myers-Briggs, you will notice that it essentially forces you into one camp or the other. Now, Myers-Briggs is based on Carl Jung's work, and apparently Carl Jung said, of course, none of us are 100% introvert or 100% extrovert, for example. But you will notice it essentially wants you to come down on one side versus the other. And the final letters are MB, and they stand for Myers-Briggs. And it was a mother-daughter combination. Catherine Briggs started in the 1920s, building on Carl Jung's work. He knew of her work. She was the first person who wanted to have a mainstream application of his work. So was really the first time in the world that anybody tried to use personality preferences to help people make career decisions because before that, fundamentally, you did what your father did because, of course, back then it was mainly men working. You did what your father did or your career choices were extremely class-driven. Okay, let's move on to the label issue. Some people don't like MBTI because they think it labels them. Yes, it obviously does. A useful analogy, however, might be if you think about your favourite room in the house. So my favourite room in the house is my bedroom. I do a lot of work on my bed. It looks out on a garden. I love the connection with the garden. My least favourite room in the house is the laundry. If you look at MBTI, the bedroom is really where you are most comfortable, where you are most in the flow, in the zone. MBTI does not mean you don't change your behaviour. So yes, of course, I go into the laundry. I don't like the laundry. I find it quite soul-destroying, but I go into the laundry. And probably from a work point of view, the example would be me working on resumes and making sure I dot the I's and cross the T's. I don't really want to do that all day, but I quite happily and skillfully go into that laundry. At a minimum, somebody talked to me about this a while ago, and it's always stuck with me. At a minimum, you could argue that those 16 types are just a description of behaviour preferences, and that that's no different than the DSM-5, which is the uh, American Psychiatric Association's description of mental disorders. If you've ever looked at that, they will have a series of behaviours that they put underneath a label. The label might be borderline personality disorder, and underneath they'll have a series of behaviours. So you could argue at a minimum, MBTI is no different than that. It's a useful catch-all of behaviours that are put under a label. And finally, if you're really sceptical, there's a guy called Dr. Dario Nardi, wonderful guy, I went to one of his conferences in Brisbane a few years ago, and since 2006, he's focused on hands-on brain research. He uses real-time EEG technology to establish the link between the parts of the brain that light up when somebody's in the zone in the flow doing an activity that matches with their MBTI preferences. If you just Google him, he has lots of information, interesting content and videos. And at the moment, he's producing content for a new book and he's slowly releasing it on LinkedIn. I had a look at his work on ENTP, which is my profile, and I found it even more fascinating. So perhaps explore that as well. Okay, let's get started. Today I'm going to talk to you about one of my favourite profiles, ENFPs. ENFPs are sometimes referred to as imaginative, enthusiastic and confident and they view life as full of possibility. So it's no surprise they're one of my favourites. Before we go on talking about ENFP, I'd like to break down those four letters. What do they mean? ENFP stands for extroverted, intuitive feeling and perceiving. Extroverted is used for a person who is energised by time spent with others. Intuitive, they're people who focus on ideas and concepts rather than facts and details. Feeling people are those who make decisions based on feelings and values rather than analysis and reason. And finally, perceiving are people who prefer to be spontaneous and flexible rather than planned and organised. If we look at the statistics for an ENFP, they're a moderately common type. They're 8% of the general population, 10% of women and 6% of men. They're commonly found in careers in counselling, teaching, religion and the arts, They score amongst the highest of all types in available resources for coping with stress. They're overrepresented amongst academically talented elementary school students. They're rated by psychologists as amongst the most likely of all types to have trouble in school. And their personal values include home and family, friendships, creativity, learning and community service. At their core... ENFPs are people-centred creators with a focus on possibilities and a contagious enthusiasm for new ideas, new people and new activities. They value harmony and goodwill and they experience a wide range of feelings and intense emotions. They're typically very agile and expressive communicators who use their wit, humour and mastery of language to create engaging stories. ENFPs are likely to be curious, creative and imaginative, energetic, enthusiastic and spontaneous, easily bored by details and repetition, cooperative and supportive, and warm, friendly and caring. Famous ENFPs include Bill Clinton, Mark Twain, Dr. Seuss, Robin Williams, Drew Barrymore, Julie Andrews, and Joan Baez. I'm, of course, interested in where each type finds satisfaction. And there's a great book called Do What You Are by Tiga and Barron. It lists 10 key issues that an ENFP needs to have in the workplace to be happy. I'm only going to mention five of them. So career satisfaction for an ENFP means that they do work that lets them work with a diverse group of people on a variety of projects motivated by creative inspiration. This work hardly ever requires them to handle the follow-through, routine details or maintenance of a system or project. The work needs to let them work at their own pace with a minimum of rules or structure and the freedom to act spontaneously. The work needs to be consistent with their personal beliefs and values, and it needs to let them create opportunities that benefit other people. And finally, it needs to be done in a friendly and relaxed environment where there's lots of humour, goodwill, and a minimum of interpersonal conflict. And if I refer now to another great book called Working Together by Isaacson and Behrens, they look at preferences of each profile and then the implications of those preferences in the workplace. So it's really straying away from the career space into more behavior in the workplace, executive coaching space. But I find it really useful and my clients do as well. It's a very detailed chapter. So again, I'm only going to pick up a few elements here and there. Because ENFPs are likely to like a bit more detail, I'm going to do a few more than I usually do. The underlying theme of an ENFP is inspiration, both of themselves and others. When it comes to their management style, it's outgoing, democratic and participative. Their style is likely to be highly people-oriented and they lead by their energy and their enthusiasm. Because relationships are so important to them, ENFPs can easily become concerned with the personal problems of their co-workers. Not surprisingly, these kinds of problems can absorb their energies sometimes to the detriment of the business itself. ENFPs are masters at showing appreciation and they give frequent and abundant praise. They seem to know just what to say and do to make the other person feel appreciated. When it comes to their values, no surprises, ENFPs value ethics and morals and they're always striving for the greater good for everybody. They look for relationships where they can promote growth and development. People, so to speak, are their centre of gravity. They trust their intuitions and inferences above all and decisions that are based solely on logical objective criteria do not get them involved. When it comes to attitude, The basic attitude of an ENFP is one of credulity, enthusiasm and idealism. They tend to see good and potential in everyone and everything. ENFPs find ambiguity perfectly acceptable because they expect things to be paradoxical and orderly, predictable and bureaucratic systems are turn-offs for ENFPs. If we look at their skills, they are skilled at anything having to do with people. Listening, facilitating, deploying, training, motivating, recruiting, counselling. ENFPs are naturals for thinking with imagery. Their writing style captures everybody's imagination. And they have this ability to unveil and disclose their interest in everything that's going around them. And with their talent for communication, they are particularly gifted in reporting and rephrasing events so that they become more illuminating, more interesting, and more valuable. As you can expect as well, warmth, graciousness, and charm are natural and important aspects of their people and communication skills. Their driving force? ENFPs have a high need for empathetic relationships. These relationships must be deep and meaningful for them to satisfy the intense hunger they feel for rapport. But there are times when ENFPs emphatically will put their foot down to clearly demonstrate a point, whether it's in agreement or in opposition. So they're no walkover. What's the energy direction of an ENFP? Given these values, beliefs and attitudes, again, it's no surprise that ENFPs direct most of their energy towards bringing forth the potential in everyone they contact. They are in constant search for their true identity and will go to great lengths in supporting others in search of their highest and best potential. Within the organisation, typically their energy is directed towards changes, which ultimately result in increased human satisfaction and performance. When it comes to their authority orientation, above all, ENFPs want the person in charge to be ethical, caring and a good human being. They don't grant authority according to the position itself, although their initial inclination is to respect position power and to seek approval from the person in charge. When it comes to conflict resolution, ENFPs prefer harmonious situations and they may ignore conflicts as long as they possibly can. They are quite distressed by conflict and they have a tendency to take things quite personally. They're not put off, though, by intense feelings, They believe that expressing feelings may even encourage others to do so, and that then the group can move towards consensus and a common understanding on how to find a resolution. And just to finish off, what are their blind spots and pitfalls? ENFPs may focus so much on the human element in any situation that they may subordinate a task to favouring interpersonal and human needs. They can be so involved in meeting the needs of others that they may lose sight of their own needs and suffer from a loss of personal identity and a sense of their own presence. And they frequently do things at the last minute. What makes ENFPs attractive to others? There's a group of CORA MBTI aficionados, and I must say they are so knowledgeable. This is taken from this group. ENFPs are attractive to others because of their excitement, their enthusiasm, and passion for life, their charisma, their emotional depth, their open-mindedness and willingness to explore alternate viewpoints, their strong moral views, and their upbeat personality that uplifts those around them. Again, a bit of fun from the same Quora group. What do you think an ENFP would be like if they like you? If an ENFP likes you, they'll want to spend as much time with you as possible. They'll ask you a million questions on your perspective from personal values to favourite foods. You'll be flattered by their obvious intent to get to know you on a deep level. You can also expect playful teasing. Where to from here? I think it's very valuable to get to know your profile. The older I get, the more I think it helps us to understand what our hardwired preferences are. Once we know that, we can use that information to decide whether to go with that hardwired preference or whether in a particular instance, it's better not to go with the hardwired preference. There's plenty of links in the show notes, so head off to the website if you want to explore more don't however go off on your own online and think that you can find out what your profile is by doing one of those free online tests. It's pretty well a waste of time. Any accredited Myers-Briggs practitioner, for example, according to the ethics, is never allowed to administer the assessment to somebody without having the debrief session. It's the debrief session that's important. If you're ever in doubt it's worth thinking back to childhood, because childhood is usually the earliest we can remember of what we were like before the world got to us and told us to either stop doing something or start doing something. I really like the MBTI Step to Interpretive Report, because it will show the effect of either life on you or life choices you've made. An example I use is myself, um, I will score quite highly as a feeler on MBTI, and I'm not a feeler. I'm the most analytical person you could ever imagine. And what I've concluded over the years is because I was brought up as a very strong Catholic, and in its best sense, I think Catholicism is about empathy and compassion and thinking of others. Obviously, I'm a career specialist, so one of its biggest values is to help you make career decisions in the workplace and to help you thrive in the workplace. Finally, I find it so useful in relationships with other people The first time I went shopping with my husband, for example, I was horrified by his extremely systematic approach to shopping. But I thought about it and I thought, well, he's a censor. That makes sense that he would shop that way. So I didn't judge him for it. I just made sure I didn't go shopping with him and I'd meet him later for a coffee. I think what it allows you to do is to understand and respect others. Thanks for listening to this podcast. It's part of several series I have with the aim to help people be happier at work. If you're interested in this approach, I do a fortnightly mail-out. In each fortnight, it might be a blog, it might be an infographic, it might be a one-minute video. And the aim of the mail-out is to keep you up to date with what's going on and to help you better manage your career. If you're interested in the mail-out, there's a sign-up form on the website, and the website is www.careerconsult.com.au or simply email us at admin and we'll get you signed up. Let's finish with the hashtag as always. Hashtag, why not be happy at work?